For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let's stop there for a minute just to point out that true biblical repentance is not sorrow because you've offended some other person, right? True biblical repentance is sorrow because you have offended a holy God. And in verse 4, that's what he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And so that's a biblical view of repentance. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight, and here's our text in 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. All right, so our text is verses 16 and 17. You've got this wonderful prayer of confession and repentance after David has been confronted over his sin with Bathsheba murdering her husband. And then uh, he's, had, he's committed adultery. And this is after all that, after Nathan the prophet has confronted him. He repents some nine months or so at least later after his adultery and the murder of, of uh, Bathsheba's husband. Terrible situation, but an incredible prayer of confession and repentance. And in these verses, in this part, where we're talking about the sacrifices of God, we have two lessons here about what constitutes, well, two lessons about the whole sacrificial system. Now, this morning, we looked at Hebrews 10, and we looked at that whole issue of the sacrificial system and how it was not sufficient to meet the need and how Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to meet the need. Um, And for a while, since I've been going through Leviticus and also now in this text in Hebrews, I've been thinking it would be good to do something on the idea of, um, uh, you know, sacrifice that's done in a proper way. Obedience is better than sacrifice, right, the scriptures say. So that's also in play here. What is, what, how should our attitudes be? What would the, the right attitude have been during the Old Covenant when people were bringing their sacrifices to the temple? What should their attitude have been? 
And David's touching on that here in verses 16 and 17. And so there are two lessons I want to draw from it. The first, in verse 16, David's dissatisfaction with the Old Testament sacrificial system. I think you do see a hint here that David recognizes that this Old Testament sacrificial system isn't what's really needed. And so there are two reasons I say that here in the text in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There are two re- there's two reasons why he's dissatisfied. Before I get to that, Charles Spurgeon said, The psalmist was so illuminated as to see far beyond the symbolic ritual. His eye of faith gazed with delight upon the actual atonement. He is looking forward, Spurgeon saying. He's dissatisfied and he's looking forward to Christ. He sees Christ in the system, but he's saying these sacrifices by themselves don't cut it. And he says, so he's with eyes of faith, as it were, he's looking forward and he's saying, Christ is what I need. And he's expressing that dissatisfaction. So he says it two ways, two reasons. First of all, God does not delight The word that's used here is delight in the form of worship. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Something to point out here, Calvin points it out really well in his commentary. It's something that I had not thought of before in regards to this. But if you go back to the book of Leviticus and you search high and low through the book of Leviticus and try to find a sacrifice for someone who commits murder and who commits adultery, you're not going to find one. There was no sacrifice. In fact, if you want to say there was a sacrifice, in a way there was. It was a death penalty for someone who committed murder and had committed adultery. And so in that sense, the penalty was death, and the law made no provision at all for it. And it also illustrates for us the inadequacy of the Old Testament system. If you've got no sacrifice for murder and adultery, what happens to us? If you hate your brother in your heart, Jesus said, you are a murderer. If you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Nobody can pass those tests. And so there was no sacrifice that could atone for this. So when he's saying what he's saying in verse 16, there's probably a very real sense of awareness of this truth. I got nothing. I have nothing. No sacrifice I can even offer but he does know because of who Christ is and how he, all this foreshadows Christ, his hope is there. His hope is there. And so there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. We're just as guilty. We're just as hopeless. The law can do nothing but condemn us. That's why we need what's represented here at the table tonight. The shed blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ, that's our only, he's our only hope. So the word delight in the Hebrew means to feel great favor towards something. Favor, uh, favor because of its own intrinsic quality. This is interesting. It's, the text is saying you will not find any favor in the intrinsic quality of the actual sacrifice itself. There's no delight in that. There's no anything in that by itself that really means anything. God didn't delight in that because that's only a form. It's what he delights in is Christ. 
And so that's what's being pointed out here. Um, there's no intrinsic quality of any sacrificial system that's not connected to Christ. The word also has to do with emotional delight is included in the term. And so he's not even emotionally, when all these sacrifices are coming, think back to what we talked about this morning, that line. Remember the line coming into the temple with all the people and the sacrifices? It's not like God looked down from heaven, saw the line, and he just had warm, fuzzy feelings because of what was happening there. Because, oh, look, they're doing sacrifices. Especially when they weren't looking forward to the fulfillment. And they were really just trusting in this action with no intention whatsoever of actually repenting. Somebody's out at the front door. And so that, there's no emotional connection to that. He doesn't delight in that. What does he delight in? We'll go back to verse 6. Go back to verse 6 in Psalm 51. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The word truth has to do with reality. God delights. He has emotional connection. He does have that. He considers it valuable when there's reality. And so if you had those worshipers coming, and they're bringing those sacrifices, but they're not really thinking about just the action and just the technicalities of performing the sacrifice, but they're looking forward to Christ and there's reality and they're coming there with brokenness and contrition over their sin. God did delight in that. That's what the true Israel did, the true people of God. And so there's lessons here that we'll connect in a minute. He does delight in truth. Now the second reason that David is dissatisfied with the Old Testament sacrificial system is because God, the word, is pleased. God is not pleased. He doesn't delight in it, and he's not pleased with it. The term has to do with the idea of acceptance, saying God doesn't even accept it when it's like that. Well, wait a minute. I'm following the rules. I've got the right sacrifice for the sin. I've read Leviticus. I know what sacrifice to bring. I'm bringing it to the temple, Right? I mean, shouldn't God accept that? Well, not just because of the, of the form. God doesn't just accept this thing because of the way the heart is. You see some other examples of this word acceptance. Go back to Leviticus chapter 22, verse 20. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 20. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. So that's the same term. You got a blemished animal, it's not acceptable, right? You go to Isaiah 56, verse 7, and you have another uh, example of the same Hebrew term. It says, um, talking, well, go back to verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So there you've got examples of what's not accepted, a blemished sacrifice, and what is accepted, joyful, heartfelt, real sacrifice that's looking forward to Christ. Not only does he not accept it, 
goes further than that. It's possible that he absolutely, positively hates it. That it's possible that when people are bringing sacrifices in the form only, that he not only doesn't like it, but he hates it. Isaiah chapter 1 is probably the best example of this or others, but Isaiah chapter 1 is the best. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It was a very violent culture at that time, even amongst the covenant people of God, and they're sacrificing their own children to demons. And he says, now you're going to come and you're going to bring your sacrifices. It's disgusting. It's an abomination. It makes me angry, and I hate them, God says. I hate it. We'll come back to Isaiah 1 a little bit later. So it's possible he positively hates forms of worship that are only the form with no truth, no reality. And I would submit to you that that doesn't just happen in the Old Covenant. That that can happen in the New Covenant with us. Where we just go through the form of worship. And I mentioned it this morning, right? Stand up when you're supposed to stand up. Sit down when you're supposed to sit down. Put the money in the plate. Do all the forms of worship. But if your heart is not there and it's not real, God can hate it. And it's, he does hate it if it's not reality, if it's not based in truth. Yeah, we think about the doctrinal aspect of that. Yes, we want to be doctrinally accurate, but truth has to do with reality. You can be as doctrinal, ac- doctrinally accurate as you want to be, but the fact is that if, you're not, if the reality's not there and you're just walking through motions, even if it's doctrinally accurate motions, God hates your worship. So um, Spurgeon says, David knew that no form of burnt sacrifice was a satisfactory propitiation. His deep soul need made him uh, look from the type to the anti-type, from the external right to the inward grace. David is looking away from the sacrificial system, and he's looking to Christ. That's his only hope, and that's the only way he can say what he says here in the text. There's no other way. He can't, there's no other way he'd be able to do it. So that brings us to the second lesson in verses 16 and 17, and that is the sacrifice that God does accept in verse 17. So in verse 17, there are two sacrifices and one reaction. The, the sacrifice God does accept, is, oh, I'm away from the text, verse 16 says, 
for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Oh, it's verse 17, sorry. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And then again, you have the word broken. A broken and contrite heart. But right now I'm focusing in on the word broken. God accepts worship that's on the basis of brokenness. He does not accept worship that's on the basis of pride. He will not accept that. He will not accept it no matter even how doctrinally accurate it might be. He, he wants worship that's based in reality before him, being honest before God at who we are, and saying, God, I'm a mess. That would be better than acting like you've got it all together when you don't. Just admitting that you're a mess because you are. You're just like me. We're all in the same boat. We're sinful. We come to the table because we need this. We come to the table because we need to be reminded that Christ died for us. That's our only basis for, for worshiping God at all. At all. Not just our doctrinal boxes that we check. Not just the, the way that we speak to each other religiously. But based only on Christ. That's the only basis we have. You've got no righteousness. Street preaching on Friday, Saturday night, whatever. That's not it. You could do that every day, 24-7, 365, and go to hell at the end of the road if that's what you're trusting in. Same thing with pastoring. Same thing with teaching a Sunday school class. Whatever you want to name. If you're just doing that for the sake of doing that, God rejects that, but what he loves is brokenness. Reject the pride. Wherever you find it in your life, reject it. And as you approach God every Sunday, every time you come to worship, even in your family time, approach him knowing you can approach, you cannot approach him apart from Christ. That's how he wants us to be. The word brokenness literally means to break something into pieces. It's often used in the context of destroying idols. Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 14, broke the high places into pieces. He wants us broken like that. Metaphorically, it describes the effect of the Word of God on our heart. What happens when you hear preaching? Are you sitting there analyzing it? Well, I don't know if I'd say it that way. You know, I do this a lot, by the way. I wouldn't say it that way. That's not the way to hear preaching. The way to hear preaching is to receive it. To receive what's being... If there's error, yes, be like the Bereans and reject that. But when you're hearing good, sound preaching of the gospel, don't nitpick it. Receive it. And let the Word of God break you into pieces over it. The heart broken over sin is the acceptable sacrifice. And so when you, when you come, how do we get there? How do we, how do we get to this place? The only way to get there is to come with that attitude. When you come into the house of God, not to sit in judgment over the Word of God, but to sit under, underneath the judgment of the Word of God and let it wreck you. Let it wreck you. Let it break you into pieces. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Wonderful verse. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place 
and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He breaks us into pieces and that brings us to the second uh, sacrifice that he accepts is con- a contrite or contrition. Contrition. The essence, we talked about something being broken into pieces. This is even further than that. Because in the Hebrew, it's talking about something that's been crushed. Basically, crushed into dust. So on one hand, broken to pieces. Contrite, crushed to dust. Right? Same word as in verse 8. And back in Psalm 51, verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Really should be contrite crushed into dust, not just broken, but smashed. Spurgeon says, never yet. And you think about all this, and you might hear this and go, it doesn't sound like the God that I've heard about, right? Like in these other churches. I didn't grow up hearing about this kind of God. What are we talking about here? I mean, if he's looking for me to be broken and crushed, then, I mean, does God hate me or something? Is that the idea? What's going on here? Spurgeon points out, never yet has God uh, spurned a lowly, weeping, penitent, and never will he while God is love and while Jesus is called the man who receives sinners. Jesus is the man who receives sinners. God is a God of love. If you are broken and you are contrite and you are smashed to dust over your sin, he will not turn, he will not mock that. He will not look at that and be like, ah, yeah, I didn't really mean it. Right? He, he receives people who come broken and contrite. The word says it. If you don't believe it, read it again, right? And read it out loud if you need to to hear God telling you. But understand that God is the one who's breaking you and, and smashing you to dust. And when he does that, thank God for it. You're coming the right way. You're offering the right kind of worship. What does it say about Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20? The bruised reed he will not break. The smoking flax he will not quench. You know what that means? Jesus doesn't deal with people that are broken. Like, okay, like you got a smoking flax. You, you feel like that. Like you barely are holding on to life. There's this flax. It's smoking. There's signs of it's like a burning ember. It's not in full flame. There's some heat there, but it's not coming to full flame. Jesus doesn't come along to somebody whose soul is like that over their sin and just take a bucket of water and douse it. That's not what he does. But when he comes to the flax, it's like that. What does he do? He comes alongside the thing, and he cups it in his hand, and he gently blows on it to bring it back up to flame. Why? Because that's who he is. That's who he is. When he breaks you like that, when you're broken over your sin, that's how he's going to be with you. He's not looking to take all hope from you and crush you into nothing. He's looking to bring you back into flame. And with a broken reed, what does he do? Well, you've got that reed that's broken, very flimsy, barely hanging on. What's he going to do? Is he going to walk up there and just smash the thing down? No. What's he going to do? He's going to come alongside it gently and gently take his hand and bring it up and support it and mend it so that it can heal and grow right. That is what our Lord does. That's how he is. But it has, there has to be contrition first. There has to be smashing by the word first. That's, the way, that's always the order. We want, in the American church, 
We want the, the smoking flax. We like the sound of that. We want the broken reed to be handled, handled that way. We like the sound of that. But we want it all without the brokenness or the contrition. Both are necessary. And with his people, he does both. This kind of offering, we learn finally, that he does not despise. He does not despise. What does the word despise mean? He, to accord little worth to something, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament. When someone comes this way, broken, contrite, he doesn't just look at this as something that is, that's ah, not worth anything. He doesn't do that. We look at it that way. We see broken, contrite people in this culture. We think, ah, they don't have it going on. You know, they're just not very business-minded or whatever. You know, they, they're not going to make it. But that's not how the Lord works. He doesn't despise it. Another word that's associated with this despising is contempt. God does not show contempt on the person who's broken and contrite in this kind of worship. Now, this is really interesting. Because if you go back to 2 Samuel 12, in verses 9 and 10, you have the aftermath, well, you have the confrontation of David by Nathan, the prophet, in 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10. And the word contempt or uh, despise, the same Hebrew word is used there, but there it's of David. David is showing contempt in 2 Samuel 12, in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So in verse 9, David's despising. He's showing contempt for what? The word. He's despised the word of God. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He's despised God in verse 9. In verse 10, he's, verse 9, despised the word. Verse 10, he's despised God. Twice in that text it says, he despised God. What, is God. what does it say here in this verse? The broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. He's not going to treat David the same way that David treated him. That's grace. That's grace. We are all there, aren't we? Didn't we all at one point despise his word? Didn't we all at one point despise him himself when we heard about the gospel? And yet God very graciously broke us with the truth, the word of God. He broke us. He smashed us to dust, right? We came in that mindset, in that reality, and repent, and you believe the gospel, and God didn't despise you. He didn't crush you and leave you there. He crushed you so that he could restore you and, and bring you into the kingdom of God, save you. So in conclusion, let's go back to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, God was saying, I hate your, your sacrifices, but it didn't stop there. Because Isaiah 1, verse 16, there's hope. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds. What in the world? 
Thank you. There, turn that off. Go back to verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Even if God hates your worship, there is still repentance. There's still an opportunity to get right. And that's just, it is. It's by repentance. It's by seeking him. And it's by the blood of Christ, ultimately. Though your sins are as scarlet, he can cleanse you. And it can be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become as wool. The last verse that I'll share before we move to the communion service. John, from the New Testament, John chapter 6, verse 37. In John 6, 37, Jesus says this, And if you come with this humility, and you come with this contrition, and you come with a right understanding of who you are in reality, every single time, this is how Christ deals with us. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You might feel cast out when you feel under the weight of that crushing and that brokenness. But you need to be reminded that who Christ is. He will receive you back, but he does require contrition. And that's how we come to Christ, to begin with it all. Brokenness over our sin, repentance and faith, realizing that Christ is our only hope. And um, that's, that's the gospel. He is our only hope. He died for our, because of, you know, he, he died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God, as we mentioned today, and he ever lives to make intercession for his saints. So we're going to prepare.